A warning, today's episode deals with anxiety, anxiety attacks, anxiety medication, and all of the delusions that go into creating these feelings. If this subject is not for you, you might want to go and find another episode. Every fall, since you and I were friends, we talked on the phone a lot in the fall. I remember in the house on Holmden, sitting on the couch, my mom was listening. She's like, who are you talking to? And I'm like, Matt. And she's like, what are you two doing? Like, we were the most dramatic kids, but it was like us processing. Yeah. We didn't call them anxieties at the times, but things that we were working through. And mental health 20 years ago was not as understood as mental health is today. There weren't many places to go and therapy still had a stigma and God forbid you were on anxiety medicine because then you were on a medicine every day. I mean, I don't know if I could have gotten through high school without you because we had our posse and that was my anxiety medicine. You know, people who accepted me for who I was and you let me kick you out every night. You remember how you come to my house and I kicked you out every night because I had to go to bed because the fear or the anxiety of being tired the next day and not performing and being uncomfortable. I still, I'm routine oriented to be in control of how I feel in the future. I eat because it's lunchtime, not because I'm hungry. So I'm not hungry at the wrong time, which affects dinner. You got to worry on Sunday night for the rest of the week. So whatever hits you on Monday morning, you've already worried about it. It's, it's a really goofy system, but it's how I manage my anxiety. And I have to worry about it now. So I don't have to worry about it later. I don't, I don't know if that makes any sense. But I've heard you, you like, talk like this before. Yeah, you have to, you have to, I have to, not you have to, I have to plan to worry, if that makes any sense. Because if I don't plan to worry, there's going to be a catastrophe that I didn't worry about. And I wouldn't know how to manage it at the moment. It's part of my identity. And there's her cold open, folks. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here with me, Earth Monster. I'm your host, Matt LeBlanc, and that has been my cross to bear since September 22nd, 1994, when Friends premiered. So leave me alone about it. This is Your Necessary Delusion, the storytelling show that celebrates vulnerability and speaks to the darkest, messiest little parts of your heart about the lies that we tell ourselves every day, the stories that we use to get out of bed, the fantasies that we let propel our lives. And my guest today is someone who has probably helped create and foster a lot of delusions that have driven me in my life. She was my very first friend in theater in eighth grade. She was the person that first led me down that actor's path and unleashed the bugs to feast on my ego, the theater bugs. But more than that, she was my best friend when we were 14, when we were just beginning to have the big conversations about life, love, and the human condition. Abby was the person that I could talk to about anything. And even though we only talk about once or twice a year these days, and we're usually surrounded by family and mostly catching up in broad strokes, when we got on the call to record this episode, we fell right back into that ongoing intimate conversation that we started together over 20 years ago. I was so excited that Abby wanted to talk on the podcast because her delusion is a big one that so many of us struggle with, and she's an expert. (laughs) It is a shifty delusion that manifests itself in all different ways for each of us. It's anxiety, part mental, part physical, 
For me, anxiety is that transitional space between my thoughts and my reality. Anxiety can take my thoughts from vapor to liquid to solid, and at that point, I usually need an adult. And at this point, you should know that I'm a sucker for a good origin story, and Abby's anxiety started very early on. Here's Abby. I was in kindergarten, and my very old lady teacher went to my mom and said, you know, Abby goes to the bathroom a lot. My mom said she is spilkus, which is the Yiddish term for like ants in your pants for being anxious. It was always me having to go to the bathroom, like my nerves and my anxiety and my worry. That's how it manifested. It all started with her compulsive need to pee. Like I said, from vapor to liquid. Delusion! That's the issue with long car rides. Will there be a bathroom? So prior to kindergarten, if we're going like way back, I was in preschool, but my mom was there. She was a teacher. So I never had really had to separate. So my mom attributed it to separating from my safe place, separating from my mom, trusting that my needs can be met by someone else. I didn't trust that. I also had just cut off my hair right before kindergarten started. I wanted to look like Peter Pan from the Mary Martin movie. And then I cried because it wasn't blonde. And so I went to kindergarten and I had this huge panic that everyone was going to think I'm a boy because my hair was so short. Anxiety that people were not going to understand who she was. It might sound silly or superficial, but it's not. It is extremely important to us. It's identity. We want to be understood for what we are intending people to understand us as. Apparently, the very old kindergarten teacher did not help things. She retired the year after. She was a very old lady and made me a nervous wreck because there was no wiggle room. It was just, you sit on the rug now, you go to the art corner now. I don't remember it that much. I just, I remember the panic I felt because it's real. Delusion! And to me, this is why this necessary delusion is so provocative. I deal with anxiety and sometimes I don't deal with it. Over the years, I have had my moments. I have had panic attacks, and I don't know about your anxiety, or Abby's for that matter, but I have always wondered about that fine line. Is this feeling real? Is it physical? Or can I change my thinking and make it go away? Some people don't understand anxiety and panic disorders as like real feelings, and your body reacts like there's real danger. Some people, when they get nervous, they have diarrhea. Too solid. They have, you know what I mean? It's just sure. how, what their nerves are. For me, I always had a pee. I just always had a pee. To the point where they would get me checked to see if I had bladder infections because I was peeing so much. That was something I was in control of. I could choose when I go to the bathroom, I guess. So it's about control. It's Yes. And for me, it's about having control of my own surroundings. And when I feel trapped or out of control is when my anxiety still to this day ramps up. But I'm an adult now. So I'm in control a lot, which is great. But then there are moments when I'm not, shit hits the fan. Shit hits the fan, meaning she believes it will hit the fan, and therefore her anxiety can ramp up and essentially sabotage her actions. I'm probably projecting, but that's how it works for me. Control is some massive delusion, huh? It really kind of sits at the center of the ego when you think about it. You are not in control, Earth Monster. And life teaches us that over and over and over again until eventually we learn to surrender. The beginning of the school year, every year, I'd have these huge bouts of like seasonal anxiety of going back to school. And only now as an adult, can I look back and it was like the letting go of like having control in the summer of what I do and who I spent it with and it being my choice to being in school, which is someone else's choice, someone else's schedule. You could do this now. You can't do this now. You can't go to the bathroom, Abby. You already went in this period. So all of those things were like big, huge. This is what gives Abby anxiety. This is what it looks like. And so that was the beginning. Abby and I met when we were in eighth grade doing a musical called Happy Valley High. 
it's kind of like a knockoff of Greece for schools who don't want to pay for the rights to do real Greece. We were fast friends. It was my first play, but Abby had been performing since she was a kid. Both of her parents are musicians. Her mom was a pianist and musical director for all of the community theater shows at the Jewish Community Center. And her dad, Lou, was born with a guitar in his hands. He still had a band that played shows, Lou's Change. They are both incredible people, and they had a big influence on me throughout junior high and high school. So in eighth grade, when Abby and I became friends, I started hanging out, like, every day. I would rollerblade to her house. I became a counselor at the theater camp with her over the summer. We starred together as the lion and the scarecrow in an all-white production of The Wiz put on at the Jewish Community Center. This alone is horribly cringy to me now. We were also the oldest people there, and the rest of the cast was made up of about 45 children. But the delusion was, we were theater people. Like extroverted gypsies who operated on the outside of the status quo. You just provide the stage and the audience, and we'll take care of the rest. Behold, our talent! Ta-da! At least that's the way that I saw us. Abby, I'm sure, had her own delusions. Abby and I were platonic partners in crime. Abby's parents had just gotten divorced, and while they explored their newly found freedom, Abby suddenly found herself with a lot of autonomy, other than the fact that she was left to take care of her six-year-old sister most of the time. So they divorced, and she went straight into her social life, which is fine. She's allowed. You know what I mean? So your mom, who actually was around a lot, like certainly I had right. a, a close relationship with her and all that stuff, was also like, you were making dinners for yourself. You were- Toby, my little you sister. Were, you were looking after your little sister most of the time, right? Like a parent, yep. Like a parent. You were like a woman. Yes, your dad always said that. In reality, we may have been anxiety-ridden 14-year-olds doing theater camp, but- in my mind, Abby was a grown woman. She also choreographed all of the shows that we did, so she had like a little power. She was in charge. And having her little sister constantly in tow kind of gave her single mom vibes, at least in my mind. It's hard to tell how conscious these feelings were looking back, but I may have been completely in love with her for like the first two years of our friendship. But I'm pretty sure that if you had asked me at the time, I would have been like, no, you just don't understand the emotional complexities of our intimate relationship or something completely delusional and out of touch like that. Anyway, our friendship was strong and we really helped each other mature through some very crucial years during high school. We talked at nauseum on the phone and we also helped each other through our first relationships with other people, of course. Abby might have described herself as a kid with high anxiety that constantly needed to go to the bathroom, but for me, she was my rock. In freshman year of high school, I was a cheerleader. I was not yet old enough to be in show choir, which was the performing choir at our group, which we both got in our sophomore year, when typically you get in your junior year, but you and I happen to be extra talented. Ta -ta -delusion. If you're not familiar with what show choir is, allow me to reveal a whole other horribly embarrassing layer of myself. Show choir is the choir that sings and dances, like Glee. The guys wore tuxedo pants and shirts and blue sequined vests and bow ties. You know, sequins. So we shimmered. And jazz shoes, obviously. We were dancing. We sang show tunes and performed everywhere from local community centers to Disney World in Orlando. I'll speak for myself. Even though we were in the choir room three times a day and did a weekly nighttime dance rehearsal and traveled out of state to compete with other show choirs frequently, I did not see myself as a dork. Delusion! 
I had always dreamed of being a scary teenager in high school, so I spiked my hair with the strongest wax that I could find, and I pierced my ears three times, and wore too many bracelets, and tiny thrift store t-shirts, and plaid flared girls, LEI pants that didn't have pockets on the butt. And still, despite everything that I am describing, including my rigorous show choir schedule, I still believed I was cool. It took from like the beginning of the school year to like Thanksgiving to feel like I can manage myself and manage the anxiety, which is why I'm sure you remember I missed our sophomore year. So many show choir competitions because of I didn't have the words to say I'm an anxious wreck. I can't go, but I couldn't go unless they were in town. I couldn't go. And you were my dance partner, right. you know, and I screwed you over, man, for first semester by second semester. I had gotten it together. Second semesters of all the years were better because I just I was grounded a little more. I had my little sister who was seven years younger than me in tow almost everywhere. My dad was remarried to my stepmom. My mom was dated this guy 13 years younger than her, which was a self-admitted one night stand gone into a 16 year relationship. We went to a school with almost 2000 kids and it was, there's lots to not be in control of. And I had to find my way on my first day of freshman year, when a senior came up to me and asked me if I wanted to learn to drive stick. And it was my sister who told me what that meant. And it wasn't a car, you know? Like that was like, oh, welcome to high school. And so it's like, it wasn't a safe place. First day of freshman year was the worst first day of school that I ever had. Really? I, I cried. Oh, I cried when I got home. I didn't want to go back. There were riots in the school. There were fights mm -hmm. every day. On my first day of freshman year, two kids got into a giant brawl in our science class. They went over their desks at each other and the teacher called security. And it was very clear that nobody had control of the situation. It was a shock, but if I'm being honest, I think that a lot of my tears came from the fact that this was not going to be an environment that I could walk into, crack a few jokes, and control the energy of the room. Do not underestimate my desire to be the center of attention when I was 15 years old. Your first podcast opened my eyes or like brought back a blood. I guess it was your second one. Yeah. of memories because you block those things out. If they don't affect you on your day to day, you block them out. But like, you're right. It was dangerous at times. For as much as I knock on show choir, I am honestly so grateful that I had it. Our high school was a fairly rough environment. Lots of drugs and fights and kids who were not engaged in anything positive going adrift. Abby was a good student, but I was not. And it's scary to think about now the truly staggering number of kids that we knew that did not live to graduate high school. There's kids out partying and drinking. My uncle died of alcoholism. So I have this huge fear of addiction and becoming addicted like instantly. So I, don't, I never had a drink. You know what I mean? I have, but not to the excessive amounts that teenagers do. I never did drugs because there was, again, on both sides of my family, whether it's gambling addiction or drugs or, you know, my grandma was on Fenfen. It was like a, a dieting pill, but it was speed ultimately. So I had, right. this, I had this fear as a teenager. And I mean, you watched it happen. Everyone else went on their paths and did what they did. And I luckily had theater as not, not an excuse, but it was a great excuse to, I have a show. I'm sorry. I can't go to that party. I have a show. I rehearsal, you know, and it, and it was a way for me to control. I lost friends over it because people thought I was against it, which maybe at the point I had to be. So I didn't feel like such an outcast. Like I had to make my straight edge choice, but people were like, oh, Abby doesn't like this. So we're not going to invite her. Let's not talk about it, like, which became very isolating because of my anxiety. I was straight edge in high school too. Not preachy straight edge, but kind of like Abby without completely realizing it. I was quietly terrified to not be straight edge which is really just to say that I was a horribly anxious teenager. I believe that I couldn't do drugs because if I did, I would be completely out of control and get addicted and waste away and never get a chance to grow up and be the person that I was supposed to be. 
which essentially turned out to be a person who relaxed a lot my first year of college and developed a very cozy relationship with drinking and smoking weed. Delusion. But when I think about our high school now, I realize there was this epidemic of people that subscribed to these other necessary delusions. That if you tried in school, that made you a loser. Delusion! And that if you didn't respect anything or invest yourself in anything, if you took drugs and didn't try, then you were cool. Ugh, delusion. This story was told so regularly that even though I didn't subscribe to it, a part of me still kinda did. I think about how much time I wasted not paying attention in class. It specifically hurts to think about how many years of Spanish classes I sat proudly disengaged in. Fast forward, my wife is from Mexico and her whole family speaks English as a second language. Ugh, why don't I speak Spanish? Anyway, for as humbly dorky as show choir and musical theater were, they really saved my life in terms of the way that I spent my free time. It's like the land of misfit children. It's just accepting. It's an inclusive area before inclusivity was like a pop topic. You just could be weird in theater. And it wasn't a question. And there wasn't pressure to kind of maybe be anything but who you were or something like that. 100%. Also, probably even more so than that, it just kept us hanging out with a lot of little kids. Right. Role models and leaders and mentors, which is what I told my, you know, what you tell yourself. How great is this? What a positive, helpful delusion that could have been for me that we were role models. Huh. Honestly, that was not in my head at all. I was busy starring in the movie of my life at that point, and all those kids were merely background actors on standby to tell me what a great job I did. You did a great job, I already know. Remember, I had big steps to follow in high school. My sister is brilliant. Her older sister was a junior when we were freshmen. Or a senior? I don't know, she was older than us. And successful. And when people saw my last name, there was an expectation to perform. I am not my sister. Thank goodness. There shouldn't be two of them in the world. Not in a bad way, but you know, you only need one, Melissa, and you need an Abby. Fitting in was always hard. You and I had different classes because you and I were on different academic tracks. So like walking into a class and not having anywhere to sit. Anyone who's like, Abby, come sit by me. You know, I'm very confident. It wasn't like I walked into class, you know, and, and it shrunk. I just faked it. You know, you and I used to call it the face. We put on the face. Right. Fake it till you make it kind of a thing. Delusion! It's always the bathroom. Again, I wasn't accident prone, but if someone told me I couldn't go to the bathroom, that's when I was going to have to go. I doesn't make logical sense. Have you ever peed your pants? No, no. I'm telling you, there's no reason. So if you were going with what like therapists in my past have said, you have your logic brain and your anxious brain and they don't communicate well, you know? So my anxious brain is just like, you're going to pee in your pants. You're going to vomit in front of everyone. You're going to have some massive life-changing moment because you can't go to the bathroom right now. By the end of senior year, I was completely caught up in my own delusion of going away to acting school in Philadelphia. I was also dating our other extremely close friend, which sort of set the whole dynamic off a little bit. There was pretty much no talking to me and... I don't think I understood at the time how much Abby's anxiety was dominating her actions. In fact, hearing this story only really makes me feel like I wish that I had been more there for her at the time. She went away to college at a small school in Southern Ohio with plans of majoring in education. But it was one of those freshman years that you hear about. School was only two hours away and I thought it was gonna be like totally fine. I thought, okay, I'll, I'll find a job somewhere in that area. I did not, I was an education major. So two times a week I went to a local elementary school. This is in, kind of Farmville, Ohio. Mm -hmm. So the locals 
we're very kind, but we had very little in common. And I loved connecting and building relationships with kids still to this day, given my profession. I was an education major because that's what I always wanted to do, but I lost my shit. When my mom was there and Toby was there for orientation, because of course I can't, how do I go to college orientation without my little sister? She's 11. They moved me in. My roommate had never met a Jewish person before. She heard I was a cheerleader. She thought I was going to make her popular. Delusion! Or little did she know, that's not the kind of cheerleader I was. I was in it for the sport. Um, <laughs> like literally the day after my mom drove off, I lost it. If I could say uncontrollable crying, it would be an understatement. So it was co-ed, but by floors. So below and above us were guys and my row in the basement were girls. And there was Greek life. There was rampant alcoholism, not alcoholism. That's me being dramatic. There was rampant drinking. Sorry. You might think that moving out on her own would award her with a lot of the control that she'd been looking for in her life, but... That is not the way that she saw it. There was some control in the sense that I could go to get food whenever I wanted. I could, you know, I I had some control, but I couldn't go home. I had no car, but it was the not being able to come home. It was people going to parties and me being in my dorm room. We had some girl OD and get sent home within the first week. That I think probably was the most triggering. She had, she shat herself on the middle of the dorm room floor coming home from a party and then was rushed to the emergency room and then sent home. Well, that was one way to go home. I went on a date, a date. We saw the ring at like the local movie theater and he was like far too scared and like afraid and like screamed and like, "Ah!" Um, so it didn't go anywhere. It didn't go anywhere. Um, There was this cute guy who lived below us who like came upstairs and like sat on, my bed was lofted. It sat on my roommate's bed. And I'm like, oh, you're wearing the same cologne as my uncle Tony. Delusion! Only then in my life at 19, maybe at that point, realizing that smell was booze because my uncle had died of alcoholism, but that's how he always smelled. And I assumed it was cologne. Delusion. It was the smell of an unsafe space. This experiment at college was not shaking out. At home, Abby had had that safe space to unwind from her day where she didn't feel pressure to put on a face, where she had a clean bathroom available at all times, but not at the dorms. It didn't matter if the girls were nice or if the bathroom was clean or even if she had a cozy lofted bunk to relax in. Because much like improv comedy, anxiety only uses reality as a jumping off point. Reality is just that one word suggestion to get the scene going. The rest of it lives in the giant unknown of what if. And then when people invite you to parties, how do you say no without sounding super lame, judgy? So I took walks. I took walks to Kroger. I had my, my, was it an iPad? Was it just an MP3 player? This was 2002. And we downloaded songs from LimeWire and I would walk because still to this day, everyone does their own thing. Some people meditate. I'm really, really bad at it. And so that's where she found her safe space, listening to music and walking to Kroger. I could keep it together when I had to keep it together. But the second I was alone or left to my thoughts, I I self-monitor, you know, um, I'm assuming it's something everyone does. They check in with themselves, but mine is genuinely conscious. You could almost hear that anxious voice creeping in. The self-monitoring happened, you know, and it's strange because it's like a familiar voice. It's your own. It's not like I'm not hearing voices, but it's your, but you hear that self-monitoring come in like, is this good? Is this okay? Am I okay right now? Is this okay right now? Do I feel safe right now? I don't like this. I don't like this. I don't like this. I don't like this. And it's a very loud, that's my anxious brain taking over and it's loud. And it can almost to the point where it can drown out people talking. Where So I can't stay present in the moment. 
and which makes making friends hard because I'm looking at someone and I'm thinking, is this person my friend? Do I like them? Do they like me? Are they a safe person? What do you think they're going to do on the weekend? Do you think they're going to go to a party? Like I, and it's exhausting. Stay tuned after the break, but first, 143 means I love you. You know the code, 143. It's like the number of the letters in I love you. It's kind of how you text I love you. If you have love for the show and you want to support us, send us some love on Venmo. You can send $1.43 to at your necessary delusion on Venmo. And we will consider that love. Thanks, guys. We are back. I had an ulcer by 19. I worried myself sick. That's what the term where it comes from. I was misdiagnosed with celiac disease because every time I ate, I got these like horrible, horrible, like stomach cramps. And they thought it was from eating so much bread and gluten. And I dropped like an insane amount of weight for a time in my life when I wasn't big to begin with. And then they did an endoscopy. And when they saw I had an ulcer and they're like, you're 19 and you worried yourself to this point. And that's when I got like my generalized anxiety disorder. The walks to Kroger were just not doing the trick anymore, and eventually she had a meltdown, which is obviously code for a horrific panic attack. And in the midst of it, she found her way over to the campus health services building. I remember there was a lobby, but there was like a sick room, you know, where if you were like really sick and contagious, they put you if so it didn't go through the school. And I came in in such an emotional state that they sent me to the sick room because they didn't want me in public, I guess, or that for my own safety. Let's face it, at this point, the people at the health services building on campus knew Abby well. She was going frequently, but this was a new level. She'd never been put in the quarantine room before. The lady, I really wish I could remember her name because, you know, it's it's life-changing, opened the door and said, I think we need to talk about medicine. And I said, okay. I, I mean, it was more like, <laughs> okay. Her generalized anxiety disorder got upped to being called panic disorder at this point. And that's when I started my first round of anxiety medicine. So I decided with a lot of protests from my mom to transfer home after first semester. I wanted to stop and leave many times mid, but I was already in contact with um, Ursuline College, my local, one of the local colleges around town. And they said, if you withdraw, it counts as Fs on your transcript and it would affect student aid. It would affect if I had any scholarships. So I, I had to finish the semester. But again, I was already at that point. They had put me on Zoloft. That was my first anxiety medicine. They start you low and it gets higher and higher and higher. There was immediate relief. It doesn't kick in for about six weeks, but I think the placebo effect of knowing I am on something that is going to help, that was immediate. I got a little like my jaw would tense up every once in a while. So, and they said that's like called a facial tremor, which it didn't feel like I had a facial tremor, but like every once in a while, I just felt like something was going on here. And I, I and it came to a like a therapeutic dose eventually. But what also happened was there were no peaks and valleys. There were no valleys. There were no lows. There were no highs. I was just, eh, I was okay. Right. You know? Um, So I'm getting used to the medicine and then I transfer home. When they wanted to put you on the medication, it doesn't sound like there was any hesitancy to that at all. I had gotten to the point, my, you know, so my sister is currently a psychiatrist. She was not a psychiatrist at the time. And at this time in my right present day, obviously if I have any medical medicinal questions, they go right to my sister. I didn't have anyone to bounce this idea off of, but if it was going to help me, I was going to do it. My family was on board 
my dad was like, Abby, just smoke a joint. I'm like, dad, it's not me. I, I, maybe that, maybe I could have changed my whole path in life. I did not. Finally, home. Can you imagine that relief? Home can be a beautiful delusion, don't you think? Or is that just me and Abby and my dad? Hey, dad. So I moved home and I cut off all my hair again. Not since kindergarten. I have a picture. It occurs to me that even cutting her hair was a bit of a delusion. I can relate to that. It's the, this is a whole new me delusion. This is not the me that just had a giant panic attack and had to be put in the quarantine room at college. This is the new and improved home version of me. And this me has shorter hair. It's the same reason that my wife usually only wears hats when we go on trips. Because in Mexico, I'm a whole different type of woman, babes. Delusion. I cut off all my hair, I moved home, and I met my future husband days later. I feel like I need to ground us here a bit. Abby is a super high-functioning person. I could do up really well. She's the kind of person that can't slow down. She's actually a bit of a workaholic sometimes. When she has a thousand things going on, that is when she thrives. In fact, I would guess a lot of the people that know her personally would be surprised to hear this story from her because she's a real alpha. She's been doing theater since she was a kid, so she can talk to anyone. She can talk in front of big groups, no sweat. She's an awesome dancer. She was a cheerleader. I suppose I feel like I just need to say this to paint an accurate picture of who she is. She is talking us through a very particular aspect of her journey, and she's really letting us into her anxious brain. But make no mistake about it, if you meet Abby in person, she does not cower. She is not shy. She will most likely talk to you first, and she will run the conversation. It was spring of freshman year. I was at Ursuline. I didn't want to go home in between classes, so I went to your house. You were in Philadelphia. I was gone at college at the time, but my parents lived very close to her new college. So in between classes, instead of going home, she ended up at my house, hanging out with my little brother who was just finishing high school. I think I called your mom. I said, Dottie, can I come over? And she's like, yeah, Johnny, come on, of course, no problem. Are you hungry? You know? So went back to a comfort place. A safe place. A safe, a safe place. place. Yeah. And hang out with my brother, who you hadn't really had much of a no, relationship the, with before. The only, and the only common ground we ever had was when he went through his quick bout of theater. I believe my brother was in one production of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat when he was like 11. So beyond that, I guess he couldn't cut it with the theater people delusion. I bet my house was kind of like a safe place to be like, oh, I could go hang out with them. And then you get there and, and I meet my whole future and you meet your whole future. But hang on. She didn't know that yet. We're jumping ahead. Abby was at my parents' house having dinner, hanging out with my 17 year old brother. When my brother's best friend, Burke comes over, he can also usually be found at my parents' house around dinner time. Burke has been hanging out at my parents' house since first grade. We grew up with him like family. He worked with us for my dad's painting company for years through high school and college. And lots of nights after painting, he would go home, shower, eat dinner with his family, and then show up at our house just in time for second dinner. His words. Burke's a nickname. His name is actually also Matt. White guys from the Midwest, huh? Anyway, Burke is just about the chillest person that I know. He is very tough to ruffle, and even at 17, he wore a very easy smile across his face 99.9% .9 of the time. Somehow, he and Abby had never really met before, and very quickly, they started dating. And he is my nice Jewish boy. He is my beshert. He is the one I'm supposed to be with. My parents love him. His parents aren't so in love with me at the beginning. I'm older, and that's fine, looking back. So my grandparents had season tickets to the WNBA because they are very big sports enthusiasts, and we go on a date to Thunderina. Thunderina, which is Earth Monster for anyone with a panic disorder should never go there. Obviously. The arena's only ever a quarter full. 
for WNBA games. The top two tiers of stands are completely empty. The bottom is pretty full because it was only that one tier and there was popcorn and there's loud music. Where we were was crowded, people going up and down the aisles and brushing me and and I want to go, but I'm on a date. So I can't go because he'll he'll realize something's weird about me because we weren't very far into our relationship. As someone with anxiety myself, I can totally understand this feeling. Reality is just the jumping off point. For me, all of my sensitivities get intensified. When people keep walking up and down the aisle and brushing my arm, I can feel it in my brain. I fixate on it. And the idea starts small, but I let it grow. I'm not even in the arena anymore. When I get anxious, I go somewhere far bigger and scarier than Thunderina. I go into my head. And it sounds like Abby did too, because suddenly, I need to get out of here now. If you've never experienced it, it's so, I can't imagine imagining it, a wash. It's, it's a wash of the blood leaving you. It's like Dang. crying and sweating. It's this very strange, moist experience because I'm like, you know, it's like the fight or flight starts happening. So I'm like perspiring, but I'm crying. And when I cry, you know, my, you know, your nose gets red and your eyes get swollen and I'm on a date. And I try so hard to keep it together, which makes it worse. And I'm just a mess. And this like 17 year old is like, uh, had no idea what to do, but was keep trying to keep his cool. Cause you know, do you think that well, he was like a little freaked out? Was he like, I do very think warm? he was freaked out. He didn't run. You know what I mean? It wasn't like i I'm getting out of this situation. This girl is crazy. Um, but he learned not to say you're acting crazy. Cause that pissed me off a lot. He let me kind of lead the way. He did not pretend to know what he was doing. I do think he was one who said, let's see if there's like a doctor here because he's very pragmatic and a problem solver. I went to the medics at the arena because I thought I was having a heart attack because that's what it, that's what it feels like. We go, go together to the medics. They check my pulse. They check my blood pressure. And as soon as they said, you're fine, you're not having a heart attack, you should go home. He's like, okay, let's go. Our apologies, ma'am. The Thunderina experience is not intended for all personality types. What made you think you could come here? Delusion! I kind of was like, I need to get home to my mom because I don't know how else to fix this. We had to take the rapid home. So I couldn't even get in the car and go. So the rapid is like our transit system. And so hours later, it took hours to calm down. I, I'm, I'm sweating now thinking about it because it was that, you know, like you have that memory. It's exhausting having a panic attack too. It's embarrassing. It's like, it's, that's the hardest part is like, you have to do your best to hide it, which I'm not succeeding at. So I'm trying to, you know, cause Matt's not much of a talker, especially then. So I'm trying to like make conversation, which is awkward and uncomfortable. And so we get home, we sit on the couch and then things mellow and dissipate. And I'm, I have a snack and I drink some water, you know, and I feel better. But to Matt's credit, he's like, okay, see you tomorrow. You know, like it wasn't a thing because he, you can't ruffle him most of the time. I've only had a few of those giant, genuine thinking I am going to die right now, panic attacks. And I don't know if you or your listeners have ever had a full-blown panic attack. I have. But if I could shed some light. For me, I start sweating profusely because I don't know why. I don't have a biological reason for that. You feel the blood draining from your body. And what happens is it's, it's leaving your head. It's leaving your hands. It's leaving your feet. It's going to all of your survival organs because it thinks you're in danger. This is exactly what it felt like to me. My hands and feet drain. They tingle like they're going to fall asleep. My head feels like it's inside of a pickle jar. My vision gets inky. Have you ever passed out before? This is the power of my necessary delusion. 
I've had panic attacks periodically since I was a kid, and it has really only been in more recent years that I've not only gotten a handle on my own anxiety, but that I realize how true it is that I have created these physical feelings in my mind. When I was in sixth grade, we had just started changing classes for certain subjects. We had just gotten lockers for the first time, and Friends had just come on the air the year before, so I was still experiencing my fame for the very first time. If you're new here, then just a reminder, my name is Matt LeBlanc, and when Friends premiered, I sort of consciously, unconsciously decided that that made me very special, and also borderline famous. Delusion, yeah. I could not be bothered with schoolwork. I had stories to tell, bits to do, comments to make, dreams to dream. School was only a place to perform for attention, and the teacher was only interrupting the show that I was putting all of my attention on. Well, I had Miss Stang for social studies, and she was no nonsense, which was obviously a really bad fit for me because I was all nonsense. I remember sitting in her class one day, thinking about how I was the most special person who had ever graced the surface of this planet, when suddenly I was awoken from my daydream when she mentioned our research paper, due tomorrow. Huh? Research paper? That sounds serious. I hardly even remembered her assigning it. Suddenly I looked around and realized that everyone had their folders open as she walked us through the guidelines for the assignment. I pulled out my folder, furiously shuffling through papers to catch up. I had not even looked at any of this, and it was becoming very clear by the moment how extensive the assignment was. Research was a scary word because she didn't just want us to write a really long paper. She wanted the information to be based on things that we had read in other places. Are you kidding? And then she wanted us to cite those things to prove that we had read them at the bottom of the page where we wrote about them. And they had to be like formatted special. This paper was responsible for a huge amount of credit and had a giant effect on our grade for the semester. I had not written one word of it and it was due tomorrow. I can't imagine that I actually tried to write the paper. I definitely did not tell my mom about it. She would have asked far too many questions and would have wanted me to do the research to write the paper. Not my style. But I must have put something together in the next 24 hours, a couple of scribbled pages, because I remember desperately drawing a cover page for it in pencil five minutes before her class the next day. Everyone stood up and collected their research papers, which were so big that we had to keep them in folders. Oof. And we walked in line to Miss Stang's classroom. She stood at the door greeting us. She had short curly hair. She was tall, wiry sort of woman. She was super sharp. As I shuffled slowly in line, my feet began to tingle. My classmates chattered about their papers. I clutched my drawing and my hands began to fall asleep. I had never noticed how dark the hallways were. My vision got inky and as I stepped up to Miss Stang to enter the classroom, everything went black. I woke up sitting in a chair with my head between my knees. They had called the nurse and moments later I was being walked out of the room to go home sick. Ah, <sighs> sweet relief. The nurse walked me into the hallway and Miss Stang stood at the door as I left. Feel better, she said. Thank you. Hey, Matt, you didn't write the research paper, did you? What happens if you don't plan to worry? So that's where the faulty thinking lies. I don't know. I mean, the worst case scenarios are always death. Anyone could die. My dad doesn't pick up the phone to this day. He's probably dead. You know, he hasn't yet been dead. So it's not death. Matt doesn't come home. My husband, he's dead. So that's always worst case scenario. Um, 
addiction, landing in the poorhouse. Did you know the poorhouse isn't a thing? Someone actually had to tell me you don't actually go to the poorhouse anymore. Matt told me. I'm like, but I was always told we're going to end up in the poorhouse, which is essentially, I guess, homelessness in my head. We were never that poor. I don't know why I think we were. You know, I got a job the second I could, whether it was at camp, whether it was at Capizio. I worked and babysat the second I could because I always felt like we were one step away from homelessness. Another big thing is because I knew some of these things were going to come up. Another worst case scenario, divorce. Always. Always. Oh, well, this is, we're obviously going to get divorced. Obvious. I mean, come on, you know, whether it's him wanting to divorce me or me wanting to divorce him, the second babies came out, man, divorce was the first thing on my mind. Babies wrecked me. Like all of us, it has been a long winding delusional path that she has walked. She's always talked like this. The necessary delusion about ending up in the poorhouse is definitely something that we covered on phone conversations when we were 14. Fear of addiction and telling the legend of her Uncle Tony's drinking. These are the stories that have stuck with her for decades. They are some of the necessary delusions that shape her path to this day. A lot of that addiction in my family's past, I have no proof of this, I felt was managing anxiety because there was none of this psychopharmacology. There was a huge stigma. You know, there were asylums when my uncle was young and my uncle started drinking at like 11. My grandma who lived to 93 kept saying, I'm not going to send my son to an asylum, just like the poor house. You know, it's probably where I get that language anyways. What's really sort of remarkable about Abby and people with personalities like hers is that the anxiety doesn't paralyze her from being able to live most of the time. It pushes her relentlessly to act. She works in education now. She started as a teacher, but she's moved her way up the ranks. She's the director of early childhood development at a private Jewish day school on the east side of Cleveland. And if that didn't sound like enough already, she also runs the drama program and the theater camp every summer. Abby is very good at what she does. She's the kind of educator and mother and mentor that you hope your child will find along their way because she lives for it and she really feels the weight of the role that she plays. If you give me a personality trait test, number one is positivity. I am a positive person. Things are always gonna turn out okay because I plan for them to, you know? Like I make them turn out okay. There's no chance. Don't screw with me, anxiety. We're gonna do this and we do it. So I've got all these titles and, and we put on shows and, and I've got my kiddos in tow and they're freaking cute as hell. It is, I, it is high functioning anxiety. And I know that there are millions of people doing the exact same thing. Since we were 14, Abby has walked to and from her car with a bag packed to the gills. Her bedroom or her bathroom or her car may be filled with an explosion of clothes for all of her activities. It is the organized chaos that is necessary to support her high level of performance. Because a job like hers does not come without pressures. There is a performance aspect that I have to prove because um, in a private school, your numbers are everything because if you don't have tuition, you don't have a school. It, it's the tuition pays for everything. So if you don't have retention, meaning the students don't stay from one year to the next, it reflects poorly on your performance and they have to blame someone. Okay. Guess what? None of those things happened, but I still lost my mind because they could have. It was the worst case scenario. Every single early childhood kid is going to leave and go to a different school and I'm going to put the school in ruins. And <laughs> what story drives you to excel? What delusion do you use to show up for yourself every day? Figure it out because we all need them. That little story to motivate us through time. It really is all about the balance between what happens here in the physical world and the stories that we choose to believe in order to live in it. It is such a fine line because in the moments that we lose reality, we really only sabotage our own actions. Now, my work day consists of hundreds of toddlers and their teachers. So I am managing all of my teachers' schedules, all of their students' needs, wants, and abilities, equally so their parents' needs and wants, um, which are very loud. 
I run early care and after care. So I'm responsible for kids for 10 and a half hours out of every day. I check in on early care. I walk out. I see the executive assistant. She's my friend, my friend, Jenny, and I start tunnel vision and I pass out at school. And they call an ambulance. They cart me on a stretcher. I'm pale as a ghost, hysterically crying at this point because I think I'm going to die because that's what happens. And I get carted out in front of other kids at this time. They took me back to my office. I came to at school and my head's in my, between my knees and my ribs are pinched, but they had cramped up because I wasn't getting oxygen to the right places. And then I had to call the head of school who, or the head of school, I mean, he checked in on me. He was an amazing man. But I said, it was a panic attack. The whole school saw me have a panic attack. And they rushed me to an emergency room and I'm there all day. A rumor mill was spreading about what had happened. They thought I was pregnant. They thought I had cancer, like just anything they could think of. It was a panic attack. That's what it was. No one specific trigger. I felt fine in the morning. What happened was the blood rushed from my brain so quickly that I passed out. So to, so my body could regulate without me having to be conscious, ruining it, doing its job. If you haven't been there yourself, then allow me to fill in how humbling it can feel as an adult to have to explain to other adults that, I'm sorry, I lost consciousness because this whole thing that you see me do every day, being this person, it means a tremendous amount to me. And I just let the pressure that I put myself under get out of control. Everyone says, do therapy, meditate. Do therapy, meditate. Okay, well, easier said than done, right? It's hard to even find an hour for myself not a therapy, let alone taking an hour for myself to talk about myself when I'm the default caretaker, caregiver, because that's my role. I choose, you know, I was that role since I was 12. That's my role happily. So still to this day, I do therapy when I can. Finding someone I connect with isn't easy. I was with a therapist who fell asleep once in a session. I was with a therapist who we had far too many friends on Facebook that I did not feel comfortable sharing information with because it wasn't, it didn't feel anonymous. Someone who, when I said I got a promotion, her response was, oh, that's great. And I didn't feel comfortable then because I felt judged. So finding a therapist has been tricky. I tried meditating. I have an app on my phone. I've had many apps on my phone about mindfulness. Oh, just what we need, right? More apps. Do you ever meditate, Matt? I play with it sometimes, but not really. They say, you know, you're trying to like your monkey mind, which is, I guess, the essentially for me, it's my anxiety brain. You know, you have all these intrusive thoughts that come in and tell you things. And I, I can't, I can't quiet. It's not something I have yet been able to do, not for lack of trying. And now finding some quiet time at home with a two-year-old and a five-year-old is damn near impossible. Like I had to schedule tonight just so we could chat quietly. Right. Um, cause they would just sit and make googly eyes at you. They're sweet kids, but they would just, you know, yeah. so I have not yet found the therapist meditation combo that everyone says will be so helpful for my anxiety. So I did what is comfortable for me. And we added some meds, we upped some meds and I've been doing really well. Um, certain things are still very anxiety producing. I can't plan a vacation. I, I can't Matt and I have just tried and I can't, I get angry because there's too much out of my control in the future, in a vacation, in a location, I don't know, spending money I don't think we have, doing activities that my children could get lost at. It's a complete incapableness to the point where it caused an argument between my husband and I, because he doesn't understand it. I don't understand it. I'm trying so hard to hide my anxiety from my children. It's learned. No, 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 no. It is a mix of learned, and genetics. I can understand that this would be a hard decision to make. 
Do I share my anxiety with my children through healthy, open conversation and allow them to have that understanding of me and other people and probably themselves? Because anxiety is something that we all struggle with. Or do I hide it from them in fear that they will start to incorporate it as part of their own story? What I think is a great process because it's worked for me. Some people might say, Abby, that's real silly, but it's how we get to the next day successfully. You're not a stranger. You know the insides. Looking in, people are going to be like, wow, man, that girl's got it going on. She's doing it. You know? And you that's, I guess, that's the goal. That's the delusion is, is, is am I a real adult? And is, you know what? I have four people living in this house. Tomorrow, if I have four people living in this house, that's a success. I want to thank Abby for her story today, for today's delusion, and for so many others that she has helped me to foster in myself along the way. Abby, you have been such a positive person in my life, and the stories that you have helped me believe have inspired confidence and understanding and direction. I hope that you'll come back with more necessary delusions for us in the future. Thank you for being here with me today, Earth Monster. If you have a necessary delusion of your own and you want to share it, you can reach out to me on Instagram at yesmatthew or email us at yournecessarydelusion at gmail.com. We always appreciate a good review on Apple iTunes. That's the Purple Podcast app. And if you have love for the show and you want to support us, you can send us $1.43 on Venmo to at your necessary delusion. And we will feel that love. I want to thank you for being here today. A big thank you to Abby. And as always, a big thank you to Paola Monterde, the love of my life which I think ultimately comes from some sort of deep-seated appreciation for you being with me because I know exactly the type of earth monster that you're dealing with. We've got epic, everyday stories of success and redemption coming out for you every Monday. We'll see you next time. So-